Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, do you know what you'll be doing on August 8th, 2025? So think about that. That's in four years from now. Maybe as you kind of think through what might happen, it's a Friday, if that helps at all. You know, I don't know what it is you will be doing exactly, but I can make a pretty good guess that you will eat. Most of us will probably eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, predictably a snack. You might have a cup of coffee or a bottle of water in there. And chances are, unless your tastes significantly change in the next four years, the food will probably look a lot like whatever it was you ate yesterday. So from before birth, one of the rhythms that we can count on is the rhythm of our food consumption. It's possibly the very first rhythm that's established in our lives, in the womb, as our mothers sustain life and satisfy cravings. And from birth, we plan our days around when we will eat. And chances are the people around you will hold you accountable to that because sometimes we get a little hangry. We keep those rhythms because eating is something that we need, it's something that sustains us. It's one of our most predictable rhythms, which is why when we intentionally disrupt that rhythm and we truly experience scarcity or abundance in our physical beings, it changes us. We're continuing our series today on rhythms of the soul by exploring two seemingly diametrically opposed spiritual disciplines, fasting and feasting. These may not be disciplines that you have ever experienced. They're a little bit more unique, but I would encourage you to explore these together today. How would your life be different If you practice these two disciplines that seem completely counterintuitive to our daily rhythms, what would happen if we allowed our devotion to God to shape our physical and our relational lives? You are both a physical and a spiritual being. And because you have both of those things, if you integrate new rhythms of longing and satisfaction into your life, you will be changed. What if it would result, what if our longing for food and submitting that longing for food to God would result in a revelation of what you're really longing for? And this basic rhythm of life could shape your understanding and enjoyment of God's fulfillment of that longing. So today we're gonna start by taking a look at an example of the Bible of both fasting and feasting. It's in Luke 5, verses 33 through 35, if you have a Bible with you today. In order to understand this story, we have to understand some things about what's happening here. We need the context before we can make some observations. This is a meal, it's a meal that's taking place just after Jesus calls Levi, Levi is otherwise known as Matthew, and he's a tax collector, and he calls him to be one of his disciples. Now Levi immediately leaves 
everything to follow Jesus. And then he holds a great feast, a banquet at his house for Jesus. And he invites other tax collectors and sinners to eat with them, which is also pretty counterintuitive. And of course, the Pharisees, who were always trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong, were close by and asking questions to try to undermine Jesus. And what the Pharisees really loved was the law. And they loved the law so much that often they would make up laws that had never been stated by God, but generally took a good thing to a really extreme place. And so here they ask about fasting. Let's take a look. It says, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. Now, fasting is abstaining from all kinds, all or some kinds, of food or drink, especially for a religious purpose. And Christians don't have the corner of the market on this. Other religions fast, or they fast for different reasons, different seasons of time. Um, there's secular reasons people fast. They fast for medical reasons, maybe for athletics, for diet control, for weight loss. And although the Mosaic law commanded fasting only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Pharisees made a law that they should fast twice a week. And Jesus calls them out on it. So what makes it different to make a law that you'll fast twice a week as opposed to just fasting on the Day of Atonement? Wouldn't it be better to fast even more? But maybe... Maybe Jesus isn't calling them out on the action of fasting. He's questioning the motivation behind their fasting. Last week, Clayton referred to this concept of already, not yet, in relationship to how we experience God's kingdom. And so to review that, the already refers to the things that we experience about the kingdom of God that arrived when Jesus did. When Jesus showed up, he came and fulfilled some of the promises of the kingdom through his death and resurrection. And we experience those things because of what Jesus did. We have freedom, we have forgiveness and healing and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we also live in the not yet. We live in anticipation of some things that we read will be coming in the kingdom of God. They won't get here in full until Jesus comes again. We are waiting for everything to get put back together again. We live in the tension of the satisfaction and fulfillment of what has already happened, the already, and the longing for the not yet, that which is still to come. So in this passage, specifically in verse 34, Jesus is identifying the already, and he's questioning the motivation behind the Pharisees' practice of fasting. Jesus in this passage is saying, I am the bridegroom, and I'm here. I'm right here, so why would you fast while I'm here? What's the purpose of that? And then he follows it with when it's appropriate to fast in verse 35, when the bridegroom is taken away. In that moment, they had the bridegroom with them. 
God incarnate was sitting at the table. They were right in the middle of the already. They were experiencing life with Jesus. But the day was coming when Jesus would be taken away and the not yet would reveal a longing for that wedding feast. Have you ever eaten a meal that you longed for years later? You couldn't stop thinking about how good it was and how much you wanted to get back to that that moment, that meal. Or maybe it was a moment that you've longed for that couldn't be topped. Something that you enjoyed so much, you think about how you might get back to that moment, even just for a second. This is the day that was coming for the disciples. And this is when Jesus says they will fast in that longing because fasting expresses our longing in a physical and tangible way. Fasting expresses our longing. Fasting is a physical way to express our longing, our desperate need for God in the not yet. Now please know, Jesus does not think fasting is bad or wrong. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, he says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus doesn't question the practice of fasting. He actually expects that Christ's followers will fast. It's not an if, but he says when you fast. But when we fast, we often do it with the wrong motivation. Oftentimes, we fast to try to convince God of something. We think it's on us to try to make him realize we're so serious about this that I'm, I'm willing to give up food, God, come on. Sometimes we do it to make up for something we've done. We sin, we do something that we know turns away from God, and we think that by fasting, we will make up for it somehow on our own, in our own action. Maybe you've fasted in the, fast, in the past because you should, because it's a rule, because you come from a religious tradition where everyone was expected to fast. Or maybe you've fasted to make yourself good enough, again, for something that you can do. Now, just because we've had a wrong motivation to fast doesn't mean that we shouldn't fast. I do wanna take an aside here, um, and I do wanna take a moment and acknowledge that we may have people here today that are struggling with or in treatment for an eating disorder. Or maybe you have a medical condition that requires a certain food intake. And fasting from food may not be a spiritual practice that it would be healthy for you to participate in at this time. And if you are in one of those categories, please do not feel the pressure to do any to fast and don't let this uh, add to any feelings of guilt or shame. Please consult with your doctor, your therapist, if there's any question if it would be safe or healthy for you to fast from food. There are other ways for you to create a similar longing experience. You might fast from television, maybe you fast from music in the car, maybe it's caffeine, maybe it's your phone, something that will still create space and a longing but please do not feel guilt 
or pressure to fast from food if you fall into one of those categories. So if Jesus assumed that we would fast, what are the motivations to do so? Well, here are some of the top motivations and examples that we see in the Bible. Here are some of the reasons for fasting that we take straight from Scripture. The first one is a defining moment. And maybe you haven't thought about this before, but multiple times in the Bible, we see someone who has a significant spiritual experience, a defining moment in their lives, and their response is to fast. Now, it happened in the Old Testament when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai and he experiences the empowerment of God to lead his people, he retreats to fast. It happens when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and fire rains down from heaven and God shows up in a huge way and Elijah retreats to fast and to pray. It happened when God reveals who Jesus is at his baptism in the Jordan River Jesus retreats to the wilderness to fast. It happens in the early church in Acts 13 when the church is sensing the movement of the Holy Spirit and they're gathered together and they're fasting and they're praying and the Holy Spirit tells them to send out missionaries. They don't end their fast. They continue to fast and to pray before they send them off. The movement from God was such a taste of the kingdom that it would seem the only appropriate response was to embody in a physical way this holy disruption in their lives. To mark the moment with more than just a journal entry, but with a physical reminder of their dependence on God for this next phase of their lives and their ministry. And so for us, you know, it may not be seeing commandments inscribed in stone by the finger of God. It may not be fire coming down from heaven, but when God's Holy Spirit moves in your life in a significant way, maybe he leads you to a new job or a location, he guides your college choice, brings the healing that you never thought would come either physically or relationally, it is appropriate to create space to embody the movement of God in your life and to remind yourself of your dependence on God. It is appropriate to long for more of the kingdom in that moment. Another reason that we see in the Bible to fast is called the turning from sinful choices fast. Now, this is the vast majority of examples of fasting in the Bible, and probably something that you may have experienced. This is the moment when someone or a group of people realize just how messed up they are and they long for God's grace. And in that longing for God's grace, a fast can create the space to physically embody that longing and also spiritually create the space to turn to God and repent. Not eating is so counterintuitive. It's such a turn from our daily rhythms that to choose to fast is an about face. It's a physical repentance in our lives. When we're caught in patterns of sin, a fast is an interruption to one of our core life patterns, which is eating. This is not about punishing yourself for your sin. This is not about bringing on punishment, but it's about grieving over the broken state of the world and our heart and our mind and turning to the Lord and asking for forgiveness. It's about longing for the kingdom and the bridegroom and for the day when there will be no more sin. The third major reason that we see for fasting in the Bible is a tragic calamity. 
It's a tragic calamity. This is when something horrible happens to me, to someone else, to the world, to my community, and the appropriate response is to not eat. Some events are so grievous that the only proper response is to stop the normal operations of your life. This may not be a specific event. I'm sure if we make this a part of our spiritual rhythms, we will have an endless list of tragedy in our broken world. David talks about this in the Psalms. He refers to weeping and fasting and putting on sackcloth and grieving in the way that he would grieve a death when it comes to the brokenness of his people. He longs for the kingdom. He mourns for the evil surrounding him. By fasting, David is embodying the grief. In biblical tradition, death is such a tragedy that it is an enemy of God's good purposes in our world. And the only appropriate response is to stop eating, to embody the tragedy, to acknowledge God's own grief at the state of his world. And David's prayers are not answered there may not be a happy ending to your fasting. Remember, we're not trying to convince God of anything. We are pleading with God, bring your kingdom, bring justice to our world, bring healing or life, and sometimes that happens, and sometimes it doesn't. But the result is not about the thing. The result is not the thing, it's about our response to this sacred moment in our lives. And the result of what happens in us because we disrupt our normal rhythms to embody our spiritual longing. Is your fasting about what you've done or about what God can do and has done? God moves in significant and personal ways in our lives, and that should motivate us to embody that disruption. God sent Jesus to take our sin to the cross, and that should motivate us to acknowledge that sacrifice and respond by breaking the rhythms that have held us captive. God's kingdom is coming, and that should move us to a deeper longing for his kingdom so we grieve over the brokenness of our world. Now, beyond just the motivations, this, throughout this series, we wanna be sure to equip you with practical ways to actually live these practices out. So what do you actually do with this longing? Here are some thoughts for when you fast. When you fast. First, choose a day. Choose a day to fast and put it on your calendar. This is why it's called the spiritual discipline because we have to train ourselves to do it. And just as we are often ruled by our rhythms of food consumption and our appetite, we are also generally people who are ruled by our calendars. So to choose a day to try to fast and mark that day down will help you to know it is coming and to make the plan for it. So choose a day. Start with breakfast and lunch. The fact is you will usually not disrupt anyone else when you fast for breakfast and lunch. Starting with these two meals is a really good way to begin fasting. If you've never done it before, maybe pick one. But as you start to, to experience this, experience that longing, breakfast and lunch is a good way to start. After you've done it a few times, you might choose to do a whole day or do a sundown to sundown fast. But choose those days and then choose a time that feels realistic for you. Then plan for what you're gonna do when you're hungry, because you will get hungry. 
That's the point. The point is to create this longing in your life. So plan ahead for what you will do that is mindful instead of mindlessly reaching for food. Now, speak the name out of who you're interceding for, or maybe close your eyes and picture the freedom from your sin. Allow yourself to long for Christ and his coming kingdom. Maybe write down a one-line prayer that you're gonna use every time your stomach grumbles a little bit. Or maybe it's a verse that you memorize to center yourself on Jesus. Maybe you recite the Lord's Prayer, calling out, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. Asking for God's kingdom to come on earth right now. Now be sure also to plan for what you will do during a mealtime. Now what will you fill that empty space that you've created with? This isn't just working through your lunch. You don't just keep going to skip the meal, but instead it's creating space to address whatever your motivation is behind your fast. I'd encourage you to write down your thoughts. Maybe it's praise in a space of transition. Maybe it's repentance from sin. Maybe it's lament for a broken world. Put words to your longing so that you can allow yourself to physically feel the motivation for your fast. And finally, invite other people in. Fast with a community group or an accountability partner and use that community to not only hold each other accountable, but also to share your experiences and to see how God moves within community. What fasting does is it helps us to experience not just in our minds, but in our bodies, that the fullness of God has not yet arrived. But what about the already? That's the not yet. But what about the already? If fasting expresses our longing for what is to come, how do we embody and celebrate the things of the kingdom that have arrived? These are good things. These are things we find joy and satisfaction in. And so just as Jesus and his followers enjoyed a feast, we too can enter into a spiritual rhythm of feasting. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? It's through this realization of the physical and the spiritual and the abstinence from food that we can fully appreciate the abundance of feasting because feasting experiences God's fulfillment. Feasting experiences God's fulfillment. Jesus expects a feast when the bridegroom is present. Christ is the bridegroom. His people, the church, are the bride. Union with him is our hope and our goal. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom, and we have some of that in the already. When two people come together in marriage, we celebrate. There's usually a feast. There's food and a cake, all to celebrate the union of two families. Most of our weddings today would pale in comparison to the wedding feasts that the people Jesus was speaking to would have known. These would have been days long and abundant with food and drink. Picture the table from Beauty and the Beast. Beef ragout, cheese souffle, pie and pudding, en flambe, even the gray stuff, it's delicious. Ask the dishes, right? but never ending and continually refreshed with food. This is the feast Jesus describes that we have to anticipate. In Isaiah 25, 6, we see a future day when, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. 
My mom likes to tell this story of when my brother was very young and in school, they had talked about Thanksgiving and they had called it a feast. And for a week, my brother anticipated this feast that he knew was coming. And on Thanksgiving Day, he sat down at the table and he put his napkin under his chin and he was wide-eyed at all that spread before him on the table. And he ate and he ate and he ate. And when he finished, his stomach was taut with all the food in it. But he was so joyful that he had experienced a feast. But really, the feast isn't even about the food. Yeah, food is delicious. It's actually something that gives us some piece of identity culturally, and it's a reminder of God's goodness to us. But the evidence is not in that abundant spread. But once again, it's in the motivation behind it. Note that not every feast has to look like the table in Beauty and the Beast. Sometimes it's a special treat as a family. Sometimes it's simply a stop for a favorite donut that reminds you of God's goodness. But how does the feast look like the kingdom? How can we truly experience a taste of the fulfillment of God's kingdom within a rhythm of feasting? It's all in the ways that we feast. So there are some things that we can do ways that we can feast that help establish this as a spiritual rhythm in our lives. We prepare and we anticipate. We prepare and we anticipate. We get excited for the feast to come. It builds anticipation, just like we anticipate Jesus' return. Think about how you feel when you get an invitation to something, whether it's a phone call or a text or like a fancy wedding or a party invitation. It feels so good to be chosen to join in a meal or a celebration and you look forward to it. And then think about when you're the one hosting or inviting people. You get your home ready, you find some food to share, you wait for all of your guests to arrive, maybe you wait at the window. At our house, there's a window that looks out on our driveway, but we have this really long driveway. And when our kids were a little bit younger, they would wait at the end of the driveway on their bikes for guests to come. And when they would see a car approaching, they would figure out who was in the car. And then they would frantically ride their bikes back down the driveway, announcing the whole way who was coming, the guests that was coming behind them. They were so excited to see the people that they had prepared for even if it was just an impromptu meal invitation. Our excitement, our preparation, our anticipation of a feast is a reminder of the good work we do as we anticipate God's fulfillment of his promises in the fullness of the kingdom. Another way we feast is that we expand our table. Every holiday or even just the times we had extra guests when I was a child, someone would call out, bring out the leaves. And we had those big pieces of wood that fit in the center of the table to expand the capacity. And suddenly our table went from the five of us to six, seven, eight, 13. We had a big family, sometimes 30. We knew when that table was extended, a feast was coming. And when we feast, we would do well to consider who should be included in our feast. How can we expand our table and this might make us uncomfortable to consider who Jesus might have around our table that has not been there before. 
A few years ago, Ruby Ibarra's proud father in Mexico made a video about his daughter's quinceanera, and he posted it on social media. Now, if you have not experienced a quinceanera, it is a huge celebration. It's widely celebrated throughout Latin America. It's when a girl turns 15 and she passes from girlhood to womanhood. And this proud father on video invited todo el mundo to his daughter's feast, the entire world. And though he meant it as an expression to invite the entire village of 140 residents, that they lived in, the video was reposted by a local event photographer, and through the power of social media, it went viral. Well over 20,000 people showed up at Ruby's Quinceanera, including national celebrities. An airline even offered steep discounts on flights to her state. The party started on Monday, it went on until 4 a.m. on Tuesday, it included food and music and dancing, and that is an extension of the table. Your feast may not be todo el mundo, but consider who might be included in your practice of feasting. A feast might be a Sunday night meal with your family where you could make sure every seat around the table is filled. Maybe you could find a friend and bring cultures together by each preparing a meal from your childhood, something that you enjoyed growing up, and tell stories about your lives and how they may have been different and yet celebrating that you now share the same table together. This summer on Saturday nights, we've had food trucks coming to the St. Charles campus, and I have seen feasting happen as families invite single people to come sit with them to get to know each other. One of our couples from our prime timers group told me they'd been chatting with a young family in line waiting for their food, and the young family paid for their meal and then invited that couple to come sit with them and eat with them and their children. It was a beautiful picture of God's family coming together and feasting around tacos. And when we feast, we also define the occasion. We define the occasion. What truly makes a feast different is the way we define it. We eat almost every day, but we disrupt our patterns and we feast when we define the occasion with intentionality. So whether it's a holiday or a backyard barbecue or a special dinner to commemorate the first day of school, we speak with intention of why this feast is more than just an abundance of food. We take time to express the joy that this represents. This might mean that you speak a blessing. A blessing is words of truth and intention about who God is, what he has done, and what he will do, what we hope he will do in someone's life. We speak blessings at the end of all of our services. That's a good example of what a blessing is. They usually begin with the words, may God. It's not a typical prayer, it's a charge and an encouragement to the listener and that feast, at a feast that could name the excitement, the anticipation of the coming kingdom. Another thing we can do to celebrate, to name those occasions, is to remember and celebrate. You speak truths about who God is, you remember who he is, and relate how you've seen those truths in your life. You remember and you celebrate. We remember the, the already, we celebrate the already and what he's done and what God is doing in our lives. You might read a meaningful quote or a story or a verse 
Last week, Pastor Clayton talked about the book Every Moment Holy. There are all kinds of words in there that would be perfect to read at the beginning of a feast. Those are words of intention to define the occasion. It might just be a toast. Sometimes when we invite friends or family, it might not be comfortable to speak words that are outwardly about God. But generally speaking, people are okay with a toast. Your words that define the occasion, they could be spoken as a toast, and you know the intention of the feast. And you experience the spiritual rhythm of fasting in that, but this might, or feasting in that, but this might make things a little more palatable for your neighbors. Another thing we do is we respond in thanks. We thank God for the good things he's given us, the satisfaction of our longing, the bridegroom's arrival and coming, the already, not yet, should very first evoke feelings of gratitude in us. Because of what God has done, we respond in gratitude, and it is good to speak that out in prayer. And we enjoy. When I think of what God has done for us in sending his son. My rest is found in the fact that I can enjoy the feast without concern of what I should be doing to earn my place at the table. In that same way, we should all find delight in the occasion or the feast without being consumed by an obligation. Don't overthink the preparation and the words and the prayer and the food. If all you do at your feast is tell stories and laugh and enjoy the food and you, in your heart, as a Christ follower, sit back and you think this reflects the kingdom, then you have found a rhythm of feasting. You have found fulfillment and satisfaction to illustrate and remind you of the satisfaction you have in the coming of the bridegroom for his bride, the church. So let's imagine this together. What would happen if we became fasting and feasting people? What would happen to you personally if you built these spiritual rhythms into your life? Imagine being changed by becoming more aware of your longing and holding space on a regular basis to physically long for the coming kingdom. You would become someone who longs for the kingdom for others as well. You'd become someone who deeply feels the weight of sin and tragedy. You'd be someone who's aware of the movement of the Holy Spirit. You'd be moved in a physical and a spiritual way by God's power and calling in your life. Imagine if you and your circle of people were changed and transformed because you entered into a practice of intentional feasting of celebrating God's fulfillment and reminding yourself of the goodness of God and his invitation for all to come and enjoy. And what would happen to us as a faith community if we were defined by this? If we were fasting and feasting people, imagine if we were known for our longing for the kingdom and our mourning over the brokenness of the world. Imagine if we embodied that longing, the anticipation of the not yet parts of the kingdom. What kind of people would we become? What kind of a church would we become? We would be the type of faith community that weeps for children who are, who are vulnerable who sees those who are desperate and joins them 
in crying out to God. It breaks free from the sin that prevents us from living out the kingdom here on earth to the fullest. And then imagine if we were known as feasting people, people who are joyful and celebrated well and opened our tables to others, and we invited everyone into our feasting because of the incredible satisfaction and fulfillment we have in the already of the kingdom of God. Lonely people would be welcomed. People wouldn't have to pretend something just to get a seat at the table and feel included. Young and old would gather at the same table, and although it might get messy and things might spill, that would just serve to remind us of the abundance in our lives that spills over into others and into our community. This many people inviting and including and loving and anticipating. Our community would be changed by a taste of the kingdom. It would create a desire to know and understand how a group of people could be so deeply shaped by these rhythms that seem completely counterintuitive to our regular patterns. And so today, we find ourselves here. Here in the already and here in the not yet tension of fasting in response to our humanity and feasting in anticipation and celebration of our eternity, it's here where we celebrate the Last Supper, the Jewish feast, the feast of Passover, a festival meal that celebrated the act of God's grace when he rescued the Israelites from slavery. He brought them into freedom. He chose this feast to explain the meaning of his death that Jesus' death would be the means by which all of humanity would be liberated from sin, and we are gonna celebrate that feast today. Jesus sat at a table with his disciples, and he invited the world, todo el mundo, into that feast. He spoke with words of blessing and intention, and he gave thanks. So before we celebrate that today, let's pray together. God, we want to be fasting and feasting people. God, we acknowledge that we long for your kingdom to come and we celebrate that which already has. God, we are rich people with things we can share and yet we are depraved people with longing to feel. So as we enter into this feast today, would you sort those feelings out within us? Would you help us to celebrate as a community of people coming to the table together? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're gonna be celebrating communion together. Now, on your way in, you should have received the bread and the juice already, and you'll wanna have that ready. Some of you are guests. You're not normally a part of Christ Community Church, but we're so glad that you are here and you are welcome at the table to participate with us today. If you're a follower of Jesus, we would love to have you join with us today. We'd love to join in this with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you're here and you're still deciding what you think about Jesus, we'd ask that you refrain from participating. 
This is something that's really special for Christ followers, and we don't want to make anyone feel like they're a hypocrite by having them do something that they might not actually understand or mean. And every time that we do this, there are people who choose not to participate, so no one will even notice if you don't participate. If there are kids here today, you may be wondering if you should eat and drink with us, and if you've talked about this with your parents and what it means, if you have surrendered your life to Christ and you've talked to your parents about what communion is, then it would be appropriate for you to participate with us. If you haven't had that conversation yet with your parents, parents, I would encourage you to have your children observe, participate by watching, and then have those conversations later with your kids. And if you want, have any questions about that, you can talk to any of our Kids World team or we have resources online as well for you. So now as we sing this next song, let's take some time to reflect on what Jesus did for us and prepare to celebrate communion together.